you're listening to the Itch and Scratch podcast. This is a tune upon a thin tin drum written by Grace Chilton. It was a hot day. My girlfriend had just died. Not coughing dead, but we weren't speaking. Nobody cheated and the end wasn't a surprise, but I was putting off picking up my stuff from her flat because I highly doubted she'd be organised enough to donate it to Oxfam, so it was okay. She has an endless social life and her work is demanding, so when I say organised, that she wouldn't be organised enough, what I mean is she has appointments and an iPhone, she has emails on the weekends and Skype calls with conference men. She has a time to get her hair done and a time to go to the gym. She has the time to phone her mother every other week and might be free next Tuesday from six. She's busy. She's busy writing statuses about being busy. She's busy. She does not get enough sleep. Her dreams are units of empty time and her time gleams with the value of its own scarcity. An empty threat echoes loudly with its lie and I knew that really the bag of pants, the trainers and the nice duffel coat, though inconvenient, would not be worth the diarised time she would need to take off from being busy for the trip to the dump. I have a lot of time, but I was putting off picking up the stuff. I was putting it off. I was putting it off because fundamentally, I did not want to see her. And I did not want to see her because fundamentally, I did not want to cry. Also, a very small, fractured part of myself, the part that's full of nostalgia and romanticism, which sticks in my flesh like a piece of glass made of light, hopes that her having to look at those worn shoes by the door every day could make her miss my absence. And perhaps part of me hoped she would. She texted me. She texts me just as a fat man comes into the restaurant. I put my phone in my apron. I stare at the fat man. It was 3 or 4 p.m., the dead hour. The normal hour where I might go to the kitchen and eat old bread, go to the toilet, smoke weed out the back with the porters or polish cutlery very, very slowly. The normal hour where Fausto would propose by the sugar bags in the pantry and I would be consumed by the desire to pour red paint down the escalator of the shopping centre. I might change all the candles or watch the manager drinking lemonade with whiskey and promise not to tell anyone about both the drinking or the bizarre cocktail of choice. And when it got to 3.45, I would indulge in my favourite pastime of choice, which at that time was doing some thinking, mainly, about black holes and consumerism. It was 3.55. I was mid-think and had it. A sweet five minutes to go. But this man is looking at me. Standing. Bedraggled and expectant. And I like him. I don't know why. Maybe it's his heavy eyes. Or the plastic blue bags in his hands. Which lends an air of dignified tragedy. Of a leerworthy character arc. Of a fish swimming north when all the birds are flying south of a lost soul, of a dead wife. This sallow-faced man was strange. His suit was smart, but his bags were poor. 
he looked successful but was not rushing and he was remarkably overweight. I like pork crackling as much as the next and I'm no size two, but as a rule, the people who shop in Harrods are thin, brittle around the collarbone, too weak for the weight of their credit card. The people who come here for a luxury dining experience tend to subsist off liquidised enzymes and vodka and don't do very much dining at all. They come here for family dinners when none of them talk to each other. They tend to be snobby over Prosecco and they tend to click their fingers. They tend to do a lot of things. But they do not. They absolutely do not tend to be large. He asks for a table for one. I give him a good one. I like him. I give him a table I think he will like. A quiet table with a nice booth seat. I pour the tap water. His face is lit eerily by a dim flame. The whole place is lit by candles, even when it's a blazing summer afternoon outside. There are no windows in our restaurant. It's a hut in a food court. Outside on the shop floor, they sell sushi and marmalade, but we've walled ourselves in from all that. Here, in our restaurant on the fifth floor, you can have yourself a rustic Italian experience. The silence makes me uncomfortable. Nice out? I ask because that's what my grandmother does in any uncomfortable situation, refers to the weather or the objects around her. Yes, he says. When I came out as gay, Gran said, Where should I hang the hockney? Grandma, I'm gay, I said. Oh, she said. Well, what does that mean? She said. That I like women. There was a pause. I like women having sex with women that I'm in love with a woman. She looked away, around at the small wall of her flat. The colour of these trees looks nice here. She went to get a hammer and a nail. And that was all that was ever said about it. He's still examining the menu. He's got skin everywhere. Thick, waxy folds folding his eyes into his face and his face into his neck. I've stood there for too long looking at his skin, so I walk down the restaurant. I stand there in the empty room. It's good that the restaurant's silence doesn't intimidate the fat man. Because it intimidates me. Just me. And a fat guy, and four o'clock in the afternoon. I wonder if he has kids. I wonder if he needs two seats in economy. I'll read the text. I've given your stuff to Oxfam. The man puts his hand up, like at school, like you do for a teacher, a solitary finger in the air. Orders the burger, the fries, wine. It's a nice wine. I always recommend it. I like the label. Bring it over in a cooler, the ice clinks inside, the crisp white napkin folded round the neck of the bottle. Would you like to try, I say? He gives a little conciliatory nod and places his lips to the frosted glass. Can't be corked anyway, it's a screw cap. And I leave him to enjoy his solitude. In the kitchen, the guys are bored. They speak in sentences, lilting like mountains and punctuate with their hands. They want to go downstairs to smoke weed again, I guess. Or maybe that's why the window's open. The deep fryer oil is spitting. The oven is baking meatballs. Fausto throws some bloody paper in the bin with the slops. He sees me and spits. The Portuguese dude is hitting chicken breasts, hitting the flesh, flattening it out. Bam, 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 for the Milanese. 
Above his station of stainless steel on one of the little meat hooks, there is a hand-drawn sign. Little pictures of objects and the English words below. A picture of a table, a shelf, and how to say Italy will win the World Cup. Every time he speaks in Portuguese, they all say, in English, in English. I take the paper with the little pictures on it and draw a smiley face. He looks up. He smiles with his big brown button eyes and I smile at him. We never speak, but understand each other well enough. I take the burgers and fries out through the swing doors of the kitchen, leaving behind the white light and steam and entering the dark candlelit floor. The fat man looks up. He tucks his napkin into his shirt. Bon appetit, I say. I thought this was an Italian restaurant, he says. Si, prego, por favor, I say. Enjoy. I wonder what bit cow it is. He puts the knife in. The last time I remember being in love, we were looking at some cows, leaning on the fence, looking across the green grass, flecked with blues and whites of wildflowers, and thinking, I'm sharing this view with someone I want to spend my life with. I'm standing next to someone with whom the very act of standing is great because she's next to me. The air smelled of pollen. Hay fever made my eyes stream. Her hair was tangling in the wind and she laughed. I look up. The man is finished, his knife and fork neatly placed. He orders the spaghetti with lamb pistachio meatballs. I act the courteous, unsurprised waiter very well. He spreads out a paper, broadsheet, flicks the paper pages. War in Syria, Kate Middleton's skirt, Trump to authorise wall and curtail immigration, an advert for stomach-flattening pants for hair dye. Wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. The man looks up. He stares at me. I hold his eyes for too long, finish clearing the plates and disappear. My gran says the times that we live in are the same as when she came here from Poland 55 years ago and met Grandad back in the day when there were signs on the doors no dogs, no blacks, no Irish kind of thing I checked my phone they had a bit of trouble with their shop the windows had got smashed once but other than that they loved it here Grandad repaired old furniture he knew the age of a tree by the rings in its wood his eyes were warm and he always smelt of glue and varnish he held my gran's hand in the tape. They walked very slowly. They whispered to each other about the colours, the beautiful reds and greens. They talked about the Hockneys all the coach journey home. They told their neighbours on the steps, and even when they went on their evening walks, they would point up at the sky and its stars and paint it to one another with their words. I worry that she's lonely. She seems to be half of herself now. Sometimes, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I see her by the window chatting away. I listened from the bathroom once when I was worried, but then as I moved closer, hovering at the doorway, I realised she was just having a little chat to Grandad about the moon and laughing with him about the sky. I check my phone. I don't reply to the Oxfam thing. Can I get you anything, Gran? I asked after the funeral. And she sat there, in the resounding emptiness of her armchair, and said nothing. 
I bought her toast and tea by the lamplight. Lovely, she said, strawberry. Eating nothing. It is extraordinary to open up your life. It is extraordinary to meet someone with the whole of your heart. To have sex with each other for the first time. To be unable to hide any part of yourself from that person. To not want to hide any part of yourself from that person. To move in with that person. To build a life with that person. It is extraordinary to do that. And the most extraordinary thing is how totally and utterly ordinary it is. The man eats his meatballs. He orders a side of bread. The man finishes his meatballs. He orders a pizza. He finishes the pizza. He orders chicken. He finishes the chicken. He orders fish. He finishes the fish. He orders veal. He finishes the veal. He orders the pancetta. He finishes the pancetta. He orders potato salad. He finishes the potato salad, he orders a different pizza. He finishes the different pizza, he orders the ragu. He finishes the ragu, he orders the rabbit. He finishes the rabbit, he orders the pappadelli. He finishes the pappadelli, he orders the gnocchi. He finishes the gnocchi, he orders avocado salad. Then he pauses and asks if we do cheeses. We do not. He asks for the dessert menu. He orders the tiramisu pot, then lemon cake, then affogato. Other people are in the restaurant now. Some business people, a lady with a Botox face, a family needing halal meat. The orders are punched through. The kitchen is a buzzing patchwork of knives and heat. The service bell is ringing. The cocktail shake is shaking. My feet just keep moving. I totally forget about the strange fat man, still sitting there, till I'm sweeping some chicken from off the floor when I see the raised hand, like in school, like a boy. And he asks for the bill. The bill totals 214 pounds, 75 pence. He's going home to throw that all up, the bartender says. I hope not, I say. Oh yeah, oh yeah, of course, the bartender says. The restaurant empties. We clear the candles and start putting chairs up. The last remaining couple leave. Their wine glasses and napkins, the imprint in the sand of their friendship, which we will sweep away, correct and clear. Polish the tables, mop the floor, look at the uniformity of chairs. The suggestion that no one was ever here and turn out the light. I'm folding up my apron in the lockers. Like what? The bartender asks as he reaches into his rucksack. I didn't say anything, I reply. You said what we could have created? Didn't know I spoke, I said. We walked down the still escalators across the white, impeccable floors, the Gucci and the flamencos. Security check our bags in case we stole stuff, and we go. Outside the night is cold. <laughs> it's just how it is, he says. See you tomorrow. He puts his headphones in, his hoodie up, and walks into the darkness to get his bus. I don't call Rachel, because Rachel is no longer the person I can call. When I get back, Gran is in bed. She's done her talking to the moon, for the curtain is a little open and light peers in. I look at the Hockney poster of the most exquisite trees, vibrant and burning, and I realise that my grandma was right. 
Sometimes the best you can do is talk about objects and jam and whether it's sunny or not, because sometimes language is a thin piece of tin, like a famous man once said, which you bang upon to make bears dance in the bitter earth amid the rain and darkness. I get in the bath. My toes part the water. I remember the fat man. I see him as a baby, so blank, so full of possibility and of hope. I let the water submerge my skin and imagine beginning again. You've been listening to A Tune Upon a Thin Tin Drum, written by Grace Chilton and performed by Helena Anthony. It was directed by Alice Knight and produced by Abraham Buckoak and the Itch and Scratch team.